Good to be back together, amen? So I was thinking about this just before I get started. Anyone grow up up north? This feels like the uh, first day when the snow starts to melt and you finally go out inside and play as, as a kid, like you've been cooped up and it's dark and gray. Like, all right, the sun is out. You're, you're beginning to see green. Uh, this is exciting. And as, as you know, there's not many things that excite me. So I'm actually excited to be here. This is, this is not made up, but uh, it's a good thing. So in our series in the church last week, we dealt with the church as a body from Romans 12. This week, we're going to deal with a different analogy of the church. So I want us to begin to make this picture in our head of weddings and, and, and brides, because in most cultures, weddings are a big deal. And they, they, bring it, they bring in the entire community. It's a community celebration. There's extravagant food and dress and elaborate festivities and all that. But usually the center of the wedding ceremony is the bride. The woman who is beautifully adorned and the center of the ceremony. And this analogy is used in the Bible to picture the church. And so all that imagery should come to mind this morning as we're working through this. And the, the, the celebration of that union, the man and woman, the husband and the wife, until death do us part, pictures this faithful husband, hopefully, who commits himself to pure bride dressed in white, hopefully, and he rolls out the red carpet for her and shows her off to everyone in the ceremony. And she takes on his name and his reputation and places herself under the fortune and protection of her husband. So this is a big deal, especially in Hebrew culture. And so a lot of these things are going to translate, but a lot of them aren't. So we are going to learn about Hebrew wedding ceremonies and proceedings, but also Hebrew marriage expectations. But most importantly, because this points us to the one who came and died to make us his body, to inaugurate a covenant, to unite us to him, but also to make us his bride, to unite us to himself in this Familiar imagery of marriage, it marks our redemption and it shows his, how he loves us, how he cherishes us and how he provides for his bride. So this morning is going to be very much a biblical theology of weddings, the wedding feast, the wedding ceremony and how the bride and the wedding point us to the church. So we're going to look at three main passages and um, the first one we're going to look at in Hosea chapters 1 through 4, I'm not going to read all of 1 through 4, but uh, gonna get, you're going to get the gist of the book from chapters 1 through 4. There we will see the problem with the bride, but also the promise for the bride. Next, we're going to look at a parable in Matthew 22 where Jesus talks about that feast and, and uh, relates it to the kingdom of God. And then we're going to see its perfection, the consummation of it all in Revelation 19. So if you would, if you open your Bibles, we're going to begin in Hosea, but I will open us up in prayer first. Heavenly Father, we come before you, the one and only awesome, true and living God. The one and only sovereign, almighty, all glorious all-knowing, all-powerful, all-praiseworthy God. And equally, God took on flesh to become a husband to a faithless bride, lived perfectly, 
died, rose again, that she may be redeemed for the perfect price. And went away, sent your spirit also fully God to preserve this bride, to sanctify this bride that she might persevere to the end so that we as the bride of Christ may come to this beautiful supper and celebration that will last forever. Thank you, our holy triune God, for your perfect plan of redemption. And I pray that we will, in a small glimpse, see it in your word this morning and give you the praise and glory and honor you are due for what you have planned and what you have declared and what you are doing in your bride for the sake of your name, which may be praised forever and ever. Amen. So in a day of celebration, we come to talk about weddings. We're going to start with Hosea, the most joyful and encouraging book in all of Scripture, right? A lot of people who like to call themselves modern day prophets, none of them are signing up to be Hosea. None of them are signing up for Hosea's calling. If you're not familiar with the book, let's turn there. And if you're not familiar with your Bible, go to the the major prophets, just the big books. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, the first minor prophet, that's Hosea. You'll find us. We're going to start right in the beginning. Because Hosea is a faithful man of God and only a faithful man of God would do what Hosea is called to do. And if you read this and if you're reading it for the first time, it will sound scandalous to you. And it's supposed to. It is supposed to make your stomach turn and your 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 mind do somersaults because this is not supposed to happen. This is not what marriage is to look like. This is not what we we think of when it means to be a prophet or when it means to be a bride. So pick up in chapter one, verse two. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go and take yourself, take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. Yes, that means exactly what it means from a whore, a prostitute for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Now, if you were in our Deuteronomy study on Wednesday, you'll know we talked about the land and the word land being repeated many times. So when Israel sinned, the entire land was affected. The land here is referring to the very ground that Israel walks on. They are so corrupt that even the soles of their feet corrupt the ground that is already cursed. But even worse, it is a ground of harlotry and idolatry that is walked away from the Lord. And this is the problem. This picture of the whore, the harlot, the one that goes after other gods, whose heart is is adulterous and idolatrous, that goes after false gods, thinking that these men, these promised husbands will fulfill in them what is lacking, that they might take the place of the one and true living God. This is the problem within Israel. And this is where God sends Hosea to send them a message through the the, the symbolism of his very life. And he does marry Gomer, a whore, a prostitute. The problem continues and there's lots of it. So I'm just going to give you some representative verses. Look at the beginning of chapter two. He says to um, Hosea, say to your brothers, you know, of course, the kids get great names. Uh, not my people and no mercy. Plead with your mother. Plead, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. That she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. Verse 13, and I will punish her. What, what type of adultery? The feast of the Baals. 
when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. Now, remember these details. There are three times a year when Israel was commanded to observe the feast. But now they were whoring after Baal and the other gods and observing their feast, but not the feast of the Lord. We read this morning in our corporate prayer, and we will look at in a moment Isaiah 61, where the righteous bride is to adorn herself with the jewels of the Lord. But this faithless bride has adorned herself with ring and jewelry so she can impress her lover. This problem continues. Look in the beginning of chapter four. What does this look like? How is this played out in the life of Israel? Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. Verse one, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing and lying and murdering and stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed flows bloodshed. Therefore, the land mourns and all who dwell in it languish and all the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, even the fish of the sea are taken away. This is faithless Israel. When we look around us and look in our culture and look in our own hearts, we are no different. The problem lies within each one of us who was born into sin and willfully sins against God. And this is a big problem. It shows you how serious God takes righteousness. That everything is affected when we sin, especially God's people going after other gods. But God does not leave his people with a problem. He is a gracious and forgiving God. There is also a promise. Look back a few verses at the end of chapter 2. Even though this bride is faithless, whoring after other gods, look how he speaks about her in verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. I will bring her into the wilderness and I will speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of accords, the valley of trouble, a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and no longer will you call me my Baal. I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow and the sword from the land and I will make you lie down in safety and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. Amen. Amen. What a beautiful promise. What a beautiful glimpse of what God has planned in the midst of one of the wickedest times in Israel's history. This is the promise of a new covenant, a new covenant that will be established forever with God's people. But it brings in a word that we need to translate for our culture. We don't understand betrothal. It's not something that, that, that we have. Because for us, if we get engaged, you can break that off. Even if we get married, you can break that off. But a betrothal in that, in that culture was legally binding. When you made this agreement between husband and wife, between family and, and family, you were united to one another. You were legally bound to one another. Your, your, your marriage, in a sense, was secured at that moment, even though it was, was not consummated. 
It was secured, but not consummated. And so there is a security in being betrothed to a husband. Paul uses this in 2 Corinthians 11. His his jealousy for them. 2 Corinthians 11 verse 2. His jealousy for them is to one bride to be faithful. For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. When Paul sees the church, this is what he sees. A woman who is bound to her husband legally, never to be departed from, even though the wedding has not been consummated yet. She is bound, betrothed to one husband. And this is Paul's goal in ministry to understand you are betrothed. You are the bride of Christ. I want you to be his spotless virgin. This is why I care about your sanctification. This is why I care about your holiness. This is why I care about your soul. Because of who your husband is, not because of who you are. And in that culture, the bride was very much identified with her husband and her identity and her value was in the riches and and reputation and prominence of her husband. Imagine being betrothed to the king of kings and lord of lords, the creator of all things. And so the betrothal was the legally binding agreement. And it was secured with a dowry price for the bride. Dowry is a gift the husband gives to her father to secure. And a dowry price would be paid. And we'll get to that in just a moment. So now we've got from the problem and the promise to now the parable. The bridegroom comes. Hosea was a shadow of this faithful groom who was to take a wife of whoredom. He was to get us to look forward to one who would do it perfectly. One groom who would take a wife of idolatrous affection toward other gods to himself. Look forward to the bridegroom. This is how Jesus presents himself when he is talking about his disciples, when he is talking, when, when John the Baptist talks about him, the, the, the friend of the bridegroom, this language is initiated. He begins his ministry this way. He sends a message in his very first miracle in the wedding in Cana. He says, I am the Lord of the feast. In me, there is abundance and there is celebration. This is just a glimmer and glimpse of things to come. But he kind of unfolds this picture of wedding and marriage and being united in Matthew 22. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Matthew chapter 22. Jesus deals with weddings quite often. It's a big deal in their culture. It's the social event of your of your calendar. They didn't take cruises. You know, they didn't have bingo nights. It was when there was a wedding. This is a big deal. Everyone showed up. They would, the businesses would shut down and they would party for seven days at minimum. We'll get into that in just a moment. But Matthew chapter 22. And again, starting in verse one. And again, Jesus spoke to them. In parables. So then we got to look at who he's talking to before. He's talking to the chief priests and the Pharisees, those who hated him and in their hearts plotted to kill him. But Jesus said he came for the lost sheep of Israel. He came to invite them to this marriage feast, but they rejected him and hated him. So Jesus speaks in parables, speaking to them, but they don't recognize it. But it has much to teach us as well. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. He is 
unveiling the father's plan of redemption, who was setting up a wedding feast for his son. And he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. We have to talk about invited here. So this is where a lot of a lot of us in within theological circles, we will make the uh, distinction between a general call and an effectual call. So there's a universal call that comes out. Repent and believe in the gospel. Believe in Jesus Christ and be saved. That call goes out to everyone. But it's only effectual to those who have ears to hear. So this general call, this general invitation has gone out to Israel. It's gone out to the chief priests and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But they have rejected him. Jesus goes on. And again, he sent other servants. Verse 4, tell those who are invited. See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, and my fat calves, and have been soldered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. The gospel is good news. This is the bountiful blessings of the Father. And they said, no. They paid no attention. One went off, one went to his farm, and another to his business. Isn't this the world? God offers blessings and, and, and feasting and joy. Like, nah, I need to go to work. I need to go back to my farm. I got to go plow my field. I got to go beat my high score or whatever I got to do. But they don't just stop there at rejection. It's it's outright belligerence in their heart. While the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully and killed them. Jesus has told us before, this is the prophets who came to declare the word of the Lord. The king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Israel rejected. So go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. The gospel goes out to the nations. And those servants went out to the roads and they gathered all who they found, both bad and good. This does not mean that the righteous and and, and unrighteous. This is in the eyes of men, the bad and good. Those who seem like they're good people and those who are wretches, they receive the invitation as well. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. When the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And this is another thing we don't understand. We, we know that, that we dress up for weddings, but there was a specific attire that was expected. And if, and if you were a wealthy family, you, you provided attire for everyone. It wasn't just the, the uh, bridesmaids and the groomsmen. Everyone would have a, a, uh, outfit on that was set for the occasion. If you didn't have one, you would, you would stand out. And so, When the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. He said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him out in the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So as we think about this in the church, we see the general call and the effectual call. But we also find a distinction here where many would say this is the visible and the invisible church. Where there are many who are who are gathered, who look like they came for the feast who look like they know the master of the feast, they know the king. But they're standing in their own garments. And as we'll look later when we get to Revelation, the garments are the righteousness of the saints. They're standing in their own righteousness. There's a guy here with the audacity to say, I can show up to your wedding on my own stature, on my own accomplishments. I don't need your garments. I've got my own. And he stands out like a sore thumb. He may even mingle in with the other wedding guests. But the king, the master of the feast, knows who is his, who is not. 
Because there's a very key verse here at the end. Verse 14, for many are called, but few are chosen. This shows that there is a general call that was out to all. But there is a choosing, there is an election of the wedding guests. Those who are truly there will be called, will hear and will receive garments of righteousness so that they might celebrate in the wedding feast. Likewise, there's another parable of the ten virgins who should be ready and anticipating this, this wedding day in Matthew 25. So Jesus begins to unfold the kingdom of God and tells them what to look like. And this is one of his primary analogies. So we've got the problem, we've got the promise, and we've got the parable that kind of gives us more indication. Now we're going to bring it all together in its perfection in Revelation 19. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to turn to Revelation 19, and this is where we're going to spend the majority of our time. So hopefully that's, that, that's helpful to set all this up. And I want, I want you to see in Revelation 19, we're going to tie together all of these themes that we've introduced from Hosea and from Matthew. So Revelation 19, uh, I want to read the chapter, but we're mainly going to focus on 6 through 8 and 9 a little bit. So let me give you context real quick. Where we are in Revelation, there's a there's a defeat of the enemy of the church. It's it's great combatant, the prostitute, the adulterer, Babylon. So now we see this this contrast where Israel herself is an adulteress. Israel herself is a harlot. But now she is set apart and the the true harlot who wants to lure away the people of God has been destroyed. So what we see here in verses one through five is a celebratory hymn of victory. that The king has destroyed the enemy of his bride. This is how heaven celebrates. After this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of the great multitude in heaven crying out, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. And he has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cry out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God. All you his saints and you who fear him, small and great. Then we're going to break. I want to read this. Then we're going to break this down. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, hallelujah for the Lord, our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am your fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. I love this passage. Can you tell? Um, so this is what we're dealing with starting in verse 6. We've got this transition from up to this point. We've looked at what we call in theology the church militant. 
Meaning the church who is on earth, who is, a, who is a standing army fighting spiritual battles, involved in spiritual warfare, to now the church triumphant. The church at war versus the church at peace in celebration because the final battle has been won. We are conquerors because our king is conquered. We are victorious because he is victorious over his enemy. But this language here, we're not familiar with if we have not been to an ancient Near Eastern wedding, if we have not been to a Hebrew wedding. There is this thing called the processional. Now we get that. Ours is very dignified. We're very prim and proper and we stand up straight and we walk down an aisle like this. The processional in a Hebrew wedding would have paraded zigzag through the city. There would have been dancing and, and shouting and songs would have been sung and the groomsmen would come with all of his guys and they would be round up in this, this, this army kind of approaching a wedding. Let me give you a, a little glimpse of that. Another book, we're going to hear Hosea and Song of Solomon in the same sermon. Turn to Song of Solomon chapter 3. So we're gonna, we'll get a picture of this. If you thought Hosea is graphic, read Song of Solomon sometime. Um, but in Song of Solomon, we get this beautiful picture where Solomon is, is approaching his bride. And look at the language used, this, this wedding processional. Chapter 3, starting in verse 6. This is the bride looking upon her, her groom coming. This is a man's man here heading to his wedding. What is that coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke? perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the fragrant powders of a merchant. Behold, it is the litter of Solomon. Around it are 60 mighty men, some of the mighty men of Israel, all of them wearing swords and, and, and expert in war, each with his sword in his thigh against terror by night. King Solomon made himself a carriage from the wood of Lebanon. He made its posts of silver, its back of gold, its seat of purple, its interior was inlaid with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Go out, all, O daughters of Zion, and look upon the king Solomon with the crown and with his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day of the gladness of his heart. It's a beautiful picture of Solomon approaching his bride. And in Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus gives us two parables, the the parable of the virgin and the parable of the talents that he relates to the kingdom of heaven. In verse 31, he gives us a glimpse of what that will look like for him. Look at Matthew chapter 5, 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all his angels with them, then he will sit on his glorious throne. One sentence. But everything we saw in, in Solomon, this great processional of these mighty men, when the Son of Man comes in glory with all of his angels, what's that going to look like? Revelation 19.6. Jumping around a little bit. Follow me from Song of Solomon to Matthew to Revelation. When this processional comes, when the Son of Man comes with his angels, this is what it will sound like. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, this is the wedding processional. When the Son of Man comes with his mighty angels, all of the saints, all of the heavenly creatures, all will sing in unison. Hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Singing songs and declaring the works of the groom and the beauty of the bride. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. This is where we find ourselves. And if you are in Christ, you will see this. 
your eyes, if they are not affixed to your skull, they will pop out of your head because this you will not be able to bring in. You will not be able to fathom this. But there's so much more here. And again, when this would happen in the Hebrew culture, this is singing and dancing and shouting like we come down dignified in the aisle. We dance a little bit afterward. They dance before, during and after, sometimes up to two weeks. And this celebration is is just a glimpse of what will happen when the son of man returns. But he's not just the son of man. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come. I remember earlier I said a dowry price must be paid. The groom, the creator, the son of the king is also the lamb, also the perfect sacrifice. You cannot marry someone's daughter unless you give him the asking price. He could not take his bride until he gave the asking price. The lamb, the full price to pay for his bride, to satisfy the father. Is in one man. This is why he's referred to as the lamb, because by his blood, she can now become the bride and it is his marriage. And the bride has made herself ready. There's something else that we don't really get in our culture. So there's what's called the, the interval or the betrothal period. So the exchange would, would happen and the groom would give his price to the father, the, 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 the dowry price, and then he would go away. And in that time, the bride would prepare herself for days, sometimes months. And she would work in bringing her maidens around her and she would purify herself and she would wash herself and she would adorn herself. And he would go away and would prepare their, their home and make everything ready. There was a process of preparation. This is why Jesus tells us, it's better that I go away. Uh, my father's house has many rooms. I'm preparing a room for you. This is the husband preparing the home for the bride. And she is in the betrothal period. She's adorning herself with, with jewels and putting on her best perfume and, and her most beautiful clothing. This is where we are right now. This is the church as we stand right now. Let me tell you how. We are to make ourselves ready. Because our groom, we've been betrothed to. He has paid the dowry price, but he has gone away. And he says, be ready because I'm coming back soon. Prepare yourselves for me. The bride is being gathered from every nation and she is to cleanse and purify herself with wedding linens and adorn herself with jewels. What does this look like? Again, Isaiah 61, verse 10 and 11. In this chapter of new covenant promise, this is how the righteousness that God gives to his saints is described. Isaiah 61, verse 10 and 11. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress. And as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before the nations. This is a promise hundreds of years before Christ and thousands of years before its consummation. But the point is, righteousness is a gift from God and it is granted to her. Our salvation is given to us. Our sanctification to set us apart. 
with the righteousness of Christ and we are to clothe and adorn ourselves. The bride has made herself ready. We are called in this time where we are waiting for our groom to return to make ourselves ready. And our righteousness that has been given to us by Christ, our good deeds, the things that we do unto his name, the treasures that we store up in heaven become this beautiful wedding dress, become this, this adornment of jewels and sweet smelling perfume and incense before the throne of our God because we are making ourselves ready. This is key to key here, going to the next verse in verse eight. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. The bride did not do it on her own. It is a gift. It was given to her by her husband. He provided everything she needed. I have done it all. I have given it all to you. I have granted it to you to wear the finest wedding gowns, to be beautiful in my sight. All you must do or do is adorn yourself. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who works in you. This is what we see played out. This is why our growth and sanctification are so important. We're preparing ourselves for our bridegroom. Jesus is returning back for his bride, whom he sanctified, who he wants to find cleansed and waiting for him. Look, I've made myself up for you. I have taken on your righteousness. I want to be pleasing to you. So this is where we got to stop for a moment and ask ourselves, do we take our sanctification seriously? Do we understand that this is what God is calling us to? Because if you don't, you think I can just go through life and I'm going to stay in the place where I am. Do you want to be an ugly bride? Really? You feel like, did you even bother getting up this morning and just rolling out of bed and say, hey, here's my husband. Take me as I am. Because what does that say about the groom? If you know that your husband took on flesh and died for you, shed his blood for you, the perfect price that was the the dowry paid that you would be bound to him forever, that he would come back to you in love with legions of angels to save you. Wouldn't you want to make yourself beautiful? Wouldn't you want to put on his righteousness? Wouldn't you want to be adorned in the righteous jewels of holiness? Mercy and grace and love and the gifts of the of the spirit. Because there is a majestic and beautiful husband. And how do you want him to find you when he returns? What have you done with the time where I left? I told you I'm coming back. I told you you're mine. No one can snatch you out of my hand. What did you do while I was away? This is where the church finds herself. But I want you to notice one more thing while we're in this passage. The emphasis here is always on the bride. The singular identity of the church. First and foremost, we are the bride of Christ before any individual attributes. The second half of verse eight gets for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. But first and foremost, we are the bride. The emphasis is on the unity. And the analogy is brought from the greater to the lesser. So in case you missed all of the symbolism here, in case you have not been reading your scriptures up to this point, these fine linens, they're the righteous deeds of the saints. And as you grow in righteousness, as you grow in the image of Christ, you will be adorned for the ceremony. You will be ready when your groom returns. 
And this is a blessing. Because at this point, John is writing down everything his, his mind can put into words and, and you can't express what he sees opened up to him in the island of Patmos. But the angel tells him, verse 9, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now we've got to be careful. Because when we look at the invitation that we saw in Matthew 22, it's easy to say, well, yeah, there's this universal call, universal salvation. And everyone is invited to know this, this is different. This is the saints. Those who have unrighteous garments. This is the effectual call here. Those who have been given ears to hear, who hear the invitation and ready themselves because their hearts have been transformed because it has been granted to them. Blessed are those who have been granted righteousness, who receive that invitation. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then, of course, as any good man of God will do, he worships an angel. He's not the first one. He probably wasn't the last. But there's this temptation. I've seen something that is so bright and so glorious and so awesome. I must worship it. He just finished telling him that the harlot has been defeated. The one who wants you to worship other gods. Now you're worshiping an angel. How quickly we forget. But we must not be hard on him. We would all do the same thing. But the angel rightly says, you must not do that. I am your fellow servant with you and your brothers. Isn't that amazing? That the angels that are glorious in heaven who surround the throne singing, holy, 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 serve the same God. Stand with us in our confession, holding the testimony of Jesus Christ. Amen. Don't worship me. Worship God. He is the only one worthy of your worship. And he closes with a simple line that ties together what we talked about last week and this week. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Last week we wrestled with what it means to prophesy in the church. Here's what we know for sure. That if you prophesy in the church, that gift must declare Jesus Christ. That gift must be the testimony of who Christ is and what he has done. Because all of this is to him and through him and for him. That he may be glorified. His bride is is adorned for his glory. And we testify of of him because we've received that invitation. So I want to kind of close this up and bring it together. And I, I love being able to trace a theme throughout scripture. And I love how this is closed up very nicely throughout the end of Revelation. Because once this wedding Any wedding is consummated. The bride and groom will be together until death do you part. But this is different because this groom conquered death and he will never part, never leave, never forsake you. He'll be with you to the end of this age and the next. This is God's plan all along. Remember, we read from Isaiah 54 earlier. Look at verse five, tying all these themes together. Isaiah 54, five. Should be up there. Sing, oh, this one. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts his name. Remember, the same creator who created all things, also husband. And the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer, maker, husband, king of Israel, and redeemer. The God of the whole earth is who he is called. Anyone who tries to tell you, That Jesus, the Redeemer, the husband in this picture, is not God or does not claim to be God, 
He knows his Bible pretty well. All these things are brought together in one verse. All these things we see perfectly in the Son of Man, the Son of God, fully God, fully man. And look at the beautiful picture of this consummation. Here's the, here's the wedding feast where everyone would, would celebrate. Here's the other part of it. What would happen is everyone would uh, feast and eat together, and they would, then they would all watch the husband and wife walk into the bridal chamber. It's like it, they, they, they had to have witness. They were witnessing, but they were outside witnessing. And so there, there would be a record of, is this marriage actually legal? Is it actually legit? So we don't have that kind of consummation. But here's the consummation after the feast that we see in chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem. The saints have gone to be with Christ first, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. The consummation of this wedding, husband and wife, is God and people forever. And here's what will mark this eternal marriage. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Ladies, I know this is what you want your husband to do. Guys, we know we wish we could do this. But this is the perfect picture of marriage. The husband and wife becoming one. The husband protecting the bride. The bride celebrating. And everyone else benefiting from it. This is brought together here at the end of Revelation. Look at chapter 22, starting in verse 12. Now, John gets a glimpse, but this has not happened yet. So here's the promise. Here's the call to the church. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes. Chapter 7 tells us that they wash their blow, low, excuse me, their, their, their robes in the blood of the Lamb. This is how you become righteous. Blessed are those who wash their robes in the blood of the Lamb so that they may have the right to the tree of life and they may enter the city by its gates. Outside of the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify about me these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. The spirit of God and the church, the saints in heaven are saying, come, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who receives the invitation say, come. That is our job. Come to the feast. Come to the sun. Someone who's made a way for you wants to redeem you out of your wickedness. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. This is our gospel call. Because we are calling people to repentance and faith. We are calling people into a family. We are calling people into sonship. We are calling people into, into a body. But we are also calling them into a wedding feast. We are calling them to be the bride of the King of kings and Lord of lords. This is our gospel as well. This is who we are as a church. So this is my challenge to you. Put on your garments. Make yourself ready. Don't be left outside like the virgins who are unprepared. He's coming. 
And he'll come in an hour where you do not know. So I just want to give you a summary of what we've studied so far. I want to bring all this together. The Hebrew wedding culture and God's plan of redemption. How he redeems his bride. The bridegroom. He has chose his bride before he created her. The wedding has been promised and announced throughout all the Old Testament. Places like Isaiah and Hosea. The betrothal was in effect when the bridegroom took on flesh to claim his bride. The dowry was paid on the cross. The bride heard his call and knew his voice. She came to him, this invitation to be wed. The betrothal period began when he ascended into heaven and prepared a place for her, a new home, instructing her bride to get herself ready because he's coming back for her. The bride is to be ready because he's promised to be returned soon. She is to put on the righteous deeds so that she is adorned for her husband. And when he does return, the feast will begin and his judgment will commence. It's the rest of chapter 19. And the church on earth and the church in heaven, chapter 21, will be united in the new heavens and new earth, the home that he's been preparing for his bride, that husband and bride may be together forever. The wedding will be consummated and it will be celebrated for all of eternity. This is Christ's church. Make yourselves ready. You do not know the day or the hour. But if you are Christ, and you know this for sure, you can say the words with the bride in the Song of Solomon where she says, My beloved is mine and I am his. He is coming for me. Let's pray. Lord, what a beautiful picture of your promises. What an amazing view into your mind, into your kingdom plan, that you would even reveal this to us, let alone do it for our sake, let alone choose us, a faithless bride, let alone marry a wife of whoredom, but redeem her and sanctify her for yourself. Lord, let us be a beautiful bride. Let us adorn ourselves with righteous deeds, with the jewels of the saints, and store up treasures in heaven and be waiting for you and not found wanting when you return. Lord, let us look forward to this day when we will be united with all the saints throughout all history and we hear the roar of mighty thunder. Holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty, the Lord our God reigns. When we sing this morning, it'll just be a small glimmer of the worship that will go on forever. And when we feast this morning, a little piece of bread and a little cup, it'll be a small glimmer of the feasting that will go on forever. The best bread we've ever tasted, the best wine we've ever tasted. The celebration with no tears, no pain, no hurt, just glory. Your glory shining on us in glory forever. Lord, you are awesome. Thank you for what you have done in us and through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.